my gosh, you guys, here we go. So excited. <laughs> Should we like start singing the song? <laughs> Talk about a title sequence song. So iconic. Totally. What was the movie? You guys explained it and then I watched it afterwards. That was like across. It featured a show that was like a cross between like Bones and Buffy. Oh, um, Horse Girl. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Horse Girl. Yeah. Yep. They have that show. What I don't remember what the show is called, but it has either. Matthew Gray Gubler mm-hmm. and um, somebody else from like Bones or something or Castle or something. I can't remember. And, something like that. Yeah. And the script that they use at the end of the show is the same font as the ending of Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's the same. Like it looked kind of like papyrus or something. Yeah. I listened to that episode because it was you and your sister that explained that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I listened to that episode very close to when I was watching Buffy. So I, like when you said it, it like piqued my interest. I was like, oh, I have to look out for that. And then I saw it and I was like, yeah, she's totally right. So They, they totally did it on purpose because it's like an amalgamation of like all those shows at the time, like together in one. It's so, so fucking funny and self-aware. I love that. <laughs> that movie is batshit crazy. Yeah. It's wild and yeah, and upsetting, it. you know. Very, oh, very yeah. But onto some stuff that is just as equally upsetting and also exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, welcome back, everyone. We're back. Welcome back. Welcome, Buffy. <laughs> I, I tried. I don't know. <laughs> Buckle up, bitches. I'm so excited. I might cry just listening to you guys. I don't know. I don't want to overhype it, but I'm definitely a sap, you know? That's why I kind of want to get mine out of the way because... Oh, uh, boy. I feel like mine is probably the most underwhelming of the bunch. Um, I do want to preface this by saying that both Nick and Kimmy have had the advantage of seeing this show multiple times. Maybe not in its entirety. I don't know how many times in full you've seen this show, Nick. I've seen it in full once. I have also seen it in full once. It was like, uh, I don't want to say it was very quick. Like I didn't rush through it, but um, I feel like I have the least amount of experience with this show. Aw, that's okay. Um, <laughs> You're going to do great. You're doing great, sweetie. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I say that because this first run through, I really did not recognize a lot of the misogyny and the Xander-isms and the Joss Whedon-isms. And throughout researching the episodes that I picked, I did pick up on some of that and some of the things that you've said about how you've been able to look at this from more of an analytical point of view, Kimmy. I am realizing a lot of things. So what I'm about to say... That's okay. (laughs) I'm about to praise Xander a lot after you just spent a lot of the last episode kind of... uh, No, that's okay. Like he he is known as the heart of the Scoobies for a reason. Like he definitely earns that badge and it's for some really important reasons. So Yeah. Xander and not because he was misogynistic or like a, a womanizer or a pig, but I identified with Xander a lot. Yeah. Uh growing up I really admired intelligent people like I tried to surround myself with a lot of very smart people and a lot of my friends were like top five in our class wow me on the other hand I was not I took AP classes because my friends were in those classes not necessarily because I thought I could do it that's ballsy (laughs) 
Yeah. And I like, I'd like to say that it paid off, but like, I'm not sure I did very well in them. Like, I feel like I passed them, but not, not in any kind of capacity that my friends did. You're making me so sad. No, it's, I mean, I had a, I feel like I had, I had great friends, but I, I do, I feel a lot like Xander because I feel like pretty much throughout the entire show, he, I don't want to say he was in the shadow of his friends, but that's sort of a very blunt way to put it. That's totally right. That's totally right. Yeah. And he as a character has those insecurities. Exactly. Right. And he said it multiple times where he's like, I, I want to help, but I can't like he's friends with the witch. He's friends with a slayer. And he just always has, has felt like he can never amount to his best friends. And in that regard, I felt very, I felt like I could relate to him quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So I I remember, and I genuinely don't know if I have forgotten an episode or I'm like getting something mixed up, but they're like, I tried to seek Xander centric episodes and I ended up watching three of them. I did end up watching the Zeppo. I watched the replacement, but I ultimately wanted to pick as one of mine, uh, hell's bells. Uh, because it had Anya in it, and she's yeah. just my favorite. Being able to see Xander so vulnerable at a point where Anya felt so human was really heartbreaking. Yeah. And it was a moment that I was so excited for, because I was like, these are two of my favorite characters that are like finally having their moment, only for it to be completely dashed by, you know unforeseen circumstances and it was heartbreaking and it really it changed Anya's character for the rest of the show she really didn't she went back to being a demon she Mm -hmm. really never I'm not sure that she really ever connected with Xander the same way ever again and it was just really sad so I I I wanted to mention or at least have that as a part of my list just because Xander is someone I relate to very very heavily so Uh. I'm going to say some things later about Xander that like really um, connect with that too. But something really cool about Hell's Bells is that from like pretty much season one, we hear about off screen characters in Xander's family. Yeah. And, and we kind of get some insight into what Xander's home life is like. And it's not, very good. No. You know? There are scenes in, uh, it might have been The Replacement, where uh, Spike is living with Xander for a while, and we hear, yeah. like, in the background, his, his parents shouting at each other. and Yeah. Um, yeah. He just has to live with that. So He talks about how his family members are drinkers, or they, you know, hurl abuse at each other one way or the other, or his parents want him to pay rent and like they you know when he's not going to college or something like that and and all this stuff and we never see them until his wedding mm-hmm. you know yeah. and then we hear like i think like they talk about uncle rory as early as like season two or something like that and then he comes and he is like who we might have expected him to be and stuff and it's such a good episode too because it's not just the pressure of you know, committing to someone that Xander is concerned about. And then there's like this alternate, you know, like it's going to be, you know, the guy, he comes back from the future or whatever. (laughs) But seeing in plain sight, like what resentment in his family, you know, how that has developed and like how that's maybe affected him. And like, is he going to impart that onto like maybe his kids or something or to his own spouse, you know, 
And it's all that pressure mounting and stuff that causes him to do what he does, which is leave her. And it sucks because that's not his fault. Like I, and I can understand like being yeah. afraid that that might be a future. Like that's obviously very possible, but like that's not his fault. And that is just so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Another reason why I wanted to bring these uh, or Xander up specifically is because I'm not sure I can think of another show that has such a strong friendship relationship between two people quite like Xander and Willow. Both of them together, like since episode one, even before, like before we even knew Buffy, they were best friends and little snippets here and there where it's just Willow and Xander. Mm -hmm. And in Hell's Bells specifically, they did have a moment where it was like, like we've grown up together and now you're here. Like this is, this is the big moment. And it's just, I love seeing them together on screen. I, and I, throughout some of these other episodes that we're discussing, I will bring up those moments because they're just so special to me. They're just perfect. They're, they're the perfect friends, and I love them so much. Oh, man. I'm already getting choked up, yo. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, and we have that, like, excellent speech from Anya, her vows, when she's saying mm-hmm. her vows, too. And it's kind of stupid. They're, they're kind of <laughs> silly. Like, I promise to have sex with you and, like, yeah. stuff like that. And then sex she, poodle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then she gets like really real and really vulnerable and it's like, oh, it's so, oh, and she never gets to say it to him. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. It's heartbreaking. But yeah, that's why that episode specifically stood out to me and why I wanted to bring it up. I love Xander, obviously, apart from his nasty lingo sometimes. But yeah, that's kind of all I have to say about Hell's Bells. That was my first pick. I have something to say. Yeah. This episode makes me very mad. And I understand that it can't all just be roses and happiness and <laughs> walking through the dandelions and stuff. Not this show. But I'm the kind of person. Not Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, I'm the kind of person that just wants everybody. Like I, like I would watch a show with like no conflict as long as I loved the characters, and for them mm-hmm. to just be happy. Why couldn't Xander and Anya just have like this happy experience? Why do they have yeah. to effectively? destroy their relationship and it is unreconcilable it really damages not just Sonya's character but Xander's as well and uh mm-hmm. I don't think either of them ever recover from it and it makes the last episode even worse because you can tell that there are a lot of regrets and I don't know it's it's just like it was their wedding, man. They could have fucking just given that to them. Like, they... Uh, yeah. Like, I would have met them in the middle. Like, I, again, don't want anyone on this show to, like, ever struggle. They can fight people, but as long as the vampire or the monster's dead by the end of the episode, I'm fine. But when they're killing people and destroying relationships and doing all this stuff, I'm just too attached to these people to, to deal with that. Like, I just I don't like... I'm, I know, I know. This is like uh, one one of the episodes you picked, Jordan, but it <laughs> made me very upset. I'm sorry. Um, it, I, it made me very upset too. Like yeah, that's, yeah, that should I can, be stated. Obviously, I mean um, that makes total sense. Like it's a very upsetting episode, and uh, but it is also a, a very good one. It's very well done. Dang, starting it off with a banger, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, sorry to make it so sad so quickly, but uh, no, but I, yeah. I love that you chose that one. I was not expecting to be talking about that episode. <laughs> and I, I do want to say that, like, again, I don't know if I if this got cut out of the first episode, but like, 
I was so excited to do to do this one, and I watched them first for my research, and then I watched your guys's. I was like, "Fuck, man, those are some really, <laughs> really hard hitting episodes." And I just didn't know if this one compared, but uh, but yeah, that's my pick. It does. It does. I'm glad. Thanks. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> I do want to mention. I know the plan was to go in order, but I kind of wanted to just get that out of the way so I can explain my love for Xander as we move forward. Uh, but for listeners, that was season six, episode 16. So I know that's later, much, much later in the show, but from here on out, we can, or we can go in order, I guess. I guess if I'm going next, cause I, uh, my episode is season four, episode 10 hush. And yeah. Yeah. This episode is about these like terrifying mythical creatures called the gentleman who start their assault on Sunnydale by stealing everyone in the town's voices. And it leaves them unable to scream when they come and cut out their people's hearts. Yes. Now, okay, so I looked this up. The show is silent for about 27 of its 45-minute runtime. Oh, so cool. It's so cool. (laughs) So you know how we, like, open in a, a classroom and they're having that discussion about the differences between, like, communication and language? And yes. Buffy gets up in the class and they do the demonstration with Riley and everything. And it turns and you, it, it turns nighttime and you slowly like realize, okay, it's a dream. Yeah. Uh, and then like suddenly you start hearing this like repeating nursery rhyme thing. And it's so reminiscent of one, two, Freddy's coming for you. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. like gives me chills just thinking about that because that one, two, Freddy's coming for you used to scare the absolute shit out of me because Freddy used to be like, really scary for me and we'll get to it but yeah these these guys are absolutely nightmarish but okay so i wrote it down it says can't even shout can't even cry the gentlemen are coming by looking in windows knocking on doors they need to take seven and they might take yours can't call to mom can't say a word you're gonna die screaming but you won't be heard oh I just got goosebumps again. Yeah, exactly. First of all, that is absolutely terrifying in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when we actually see these motherfuckers. Yeah. As someone who has seen every episode of this show, I can honestly say in an opinion that they're both my favorite and the scariest villains. One ever go up against. Like, I totally agree. Yep. Definitely. The gentlemen are, are the top. So well known. So fucking scary. I 100% agree. So uh, if you listen to last episode, I spent a lot of it talking about uh, uh, an actor named Doug Jones. And you know what else we talked about in the last episode? Oh, Kimmy. Kimmy. <laughs> we brought you up twice. We won't talk about it. We'll we'll talk about it after this episode. But uh, oh, my God. Pan's so, Labyrinth. Uh-huh. And this is two weeks ago now. We didn't even bring yeah. it up because now this is or however long ago whenever we released this episode this is two episodes ago we have a question that we need to ask you and we hope it's not offensive but we're still gonna ask it regardless are we doing it now yeah yeah oh my gosh well, no, i don't care i mean whenever you want to do it <laughs> what is the question right in the middle of my uh discussion that's fine <laughs> kimberly the, yeah um in regards to menstruation Yes. As an individual who is Jewish, uh, what were you taught about Eve and menstruation? Is that right? That was the right question, right? What was I taught about Eve in regards to menstruation? The story was we were trying to figure out if like Eve's punishment for eating the apple was 
like related to menstruation and I Googled it and it said in Judaism that is the case that like her punishment was the monthly curse of menstruation. And I wanted to know. That's very interesting. According to Wikipedia. And we were like, we know a Jew. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I don't know if somebody who is not super practicing um, is the best person to ask about that. But I, I do know that women in Jewish history and legend are revered for their intelligence and beauty and being a matriarch is very respected, you know? So personally, I feel like, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. I feel like being, you know, somebody who can bear children is very empowering or something like that. Personally, like when I got my period, everybody in my entire family suddenly knew and called me up to say model top, you know? <laughs> oh my God. Wow. It was so embarrassing. And it was the, <laughs> like the day before our eighth grade graduation to Sunsplash Water Park. And oh, no. I had to learn how to use a tampon that day. <laughs> so, oh, that sounds that, horrifying. <laughs> oh no. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I've definitely heard that actually. I have heard, some, I didn't know that it was Jewish uh, text that talks about your period being the curse of women because of like the fruit of knowledge or whatever. It's possible. I, I, I also think that it might have had like negative connotation because of like men like wanting to like preserve chastity and stuff like that. And, you know, that that seems highly likely. But I'm not a religious studies person. So something I was taught was that one of the penalties or whatever, one of the punishments of her uh, eating the apple was pain in childbirth. And I thought, okay, well. Oh, yes. I do recall hearing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I thought like, okay, maybe they kind of like link together because they're sort of in the same category because you kind of got to have one to do the other. So mm. this discussion makes more sense in the context of the movie, but I think it was more like <laughs> that was. You were just talking the, about periods. <laughs> that was the, the Christian take. And I was trying to like see if I could relate it back to menstruation specifically. And then Judaism came up. So that's that's why we asked. But we had another question. I don't know if we want to ask it here or not. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have a question. Yeah. Wait, you're saying that this story about Eve and like having pain in childbirth or the curse of the period. <laughs> <laughs> the curse of the period is something that is noted in Christian text. So specifically child like pain in childbirth was the curse seemingly in Christian text. Yeah. And I was trying to see if menstruation was mentioned anywhere in any religious text, oh. Spe like specifically menstruation. And it seemed to show up in like Judaism very briefly. Oh. And so we were just trying to confirm that, I guess. I don't know. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay. I misheard your question. I thought that you were saying that in Jewish text, it says that. Oh, I, I have no idea. No, I, I didn't think it did. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at um, least we got to have this really awkward conversation. <laughs> and now you guys know when I first got my period. Yeah. <laughs> but you learned to use that tampon and you had a blast at the water park, didn't you? I did. I Good did. Good for you. Yes. Good, Good. for you. <laughs> what was the other question? We're going to get nominated for a podcast award after this episode. <laughs> I can already tell. I, it's wanna... called Tangents by Nick Jordan and Kimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the other question was. I do. Um, what is it? Kimmy, I apologize. We are but two I'm ready. gay men. Um, what is a vulva? 
<laughs> what is a vulva? I don't even know if I know like scientifically the right answer to that. Um, it, we know it's like a part of the yeah, it's part of the vagina. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's part. Of, I did not know that. Oh, you don't know that it's part of the vagina? Nope. Well, well, now I I'm went curious. to. Uh, we were not taught this kind of stuff in my school. Let me uh, look this shit up. Vagina diagram. I don't even vagina. remember why that came up, but it was sort of like. The, the Judaism question came up. We're like, oh, we can ask Kimmy. And then we were talking about vulva. And we're like, we could probably ask Kimmy oh, that too. It's because it's because um, there are a ton of like female, like the female version of phallic. Uterine. Uh, references in Hans Labyrinth, which is the movie right. that we yeah. just did. All right. So according to this graph, the vulva is like the whole thing. Oh, the whole. I don't know if that's right. Vagina, the whole thing, like the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sounds good. Oh wait, no, this one looks a little bit more detailed. Oh yes, okay. So from the top of the clitoris, clitoris, (laughs) (laughs) from the top of the clitoris down to like essentially the perineum is the vulva. So that whole area. Yeah. Does that okay. answer your question? Where, where are the Got teeth? <laughs> what yeah, where are the, the teeth? That mouth that pops out, yeah. where is that housed? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. I'm dying. <laughs> I'm so glad you're such a good sport because yes. some people will yeah. be like, I got to go, guys. <laughs> no, whatever. It's just vaginas. Cool. I did ask Courtney how she washed her ass, so uh, I don't think that this is far from uh, <laughs> far from format. Oh, you did, didn't you? Oh my god, yeah. And I was fully expecting her to be like, "I'm not answering that question," and she <laughs> no, fully I did. And I was like, "We can cut that out." It was just a joke. I'm sorry. I, I'm so sorry, Nick. Please keep talking about a hush. <laughs> <laughs> that was my fault. I I totally started that tangent. Um, I don't regret it, though. No, it's all good. I really enjoyed both of those uh, detours. (laughs) So, Doug Jones, he plays the lead. And uh, I did talk about last week that he's like this master transformative actor who is in a ton of things. And he's like completely unrecognizable because he's always, you know, in makeup. Something I didn't mention last week is that he is also a professional mime artist. And um, as were all of the performers who played the gentleman. He plays the lead Ooh. gentleman, but all of them were mimes. I That's crazy. I did not know that. That's so cool. That's dope. My sister told me that like yesterday and I looked it up to verify because I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And then I was like, well, everybody but Doug Jones. And then I'm like, oh my God, Doug Jones. <laughs> if you just type in his name, he's like, he's an actor and professional mime artist. I'm like, well, damn. Cool. So this episode really like says a lot about how we communicate with one another. First third of the show is filled with these conversations about like negative implications of communication. Like mm-hmm. Anya's too blunt in her speech to Xander. Giles just wants to get rid of Spike for the weekend so that he can have some quiet time because he's being like driven crazy by all of this this chatter. Uh, and you know, Willow thinks that her Wicca group is only talking absolute nonsense, that they're just not really, they're not really getting it. Mm. And watching this back, I think knowing that things were about to go silent, uh, just made me eye roll 
through these conversations even more. Like they felt purposely grading in a way because I feel like this episode is trying to say that there's a lot more that can be said through actions than just like verbal language. So like when they all have to finally shut up, this episode is filled with uh, this compelling commentary on not only the over-reliance on language, but also the benefit of not being constrained to that. So like, the gentlemen make absolutely no noise, right? And they're able to move around and conduct their killings like quickly and efficiently. Like there are just scenes of them like walking through the background of shots and things. I mean, it's just brilliant. Whereas uh, there's actually a lot of fun made of the fact that the gang suddenly cannot talk. Like the steak masturbating joke and the watching this with my sister and then like remembering watching this like for the first time and just laughing yeah. so much at that Buffy will patrol tonight, like yeah. slideshow. <laughs> uh, like I told you guys, I, I have a pillow uh, with that on it, with that that image on it. Like Buffy will patrol tonight. Uh, that little want that pillow. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we we have the boobies joke when he's he's thinking that they're looking for boobies instead of hearts, and then like when Riley smashes that jar. That's one of my favorite parts. Uh, and at first, and he's like, "Yeah, I did it." <laughs> and he like instead of breaking the box open. Um, yes. And then there's like this completely silent, beautiful, sensual demonstration of strength and vulnerability with Tara and Willow moving that machine together, and it's. It's like there didn't need to be any sort of conversation. You can you can sense what what they're thinking and communicating with each other just by the way that they look at each other, by the way they're holding each other's hands. This episode is the shit. And while I believe there should have been many more uh, nominations, it makes sense that this is the only episode in the entire series to be nominated for an Emmy in the Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series category. Yeah, isn't that only episode? I know. God. And it also, this is something I also just wanted to bring up, not only because I always talk about awards and stuff, but um, it makes a lot of sense. It it also got a nomination for outstanding cinematography in a a single camera series. I don't want to say like the, the rest of the show isn't beautiful to look at because there are a lot of really visual episodes that I I really enjoy. But this particular one is like, I I think like head and shoulders above the rest. And it's funny because Whedon actually decided to write Hush in response to critics arguing that the success of the show was dependent mostly on the dialogue. He wanted to show that they could do something different. You guys know me like I'm really big on horror. Like it's very hard to scare me. Only like a couple of movies can. That TV show from 19 or I guess like it would have been like what 2000, 2001 scared the shit out of me. Mm. It's really fucking, I don't know. I just like and, and when it's scary, when things are really like frightening to me, I almost like appreciate them more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. And the score is so good. It's very like, actually, I don't know if you guys know this, but you know, my sister and I, we had all the box sets. So that's the DVD menu. The score for that episode, Hush, is the DVD menu uh, soundtrack. Oh, good. (laughs) It's just like, so good. It's like, kind of, you know, the gentlemen are not normal demons, like how we learn to know them. They're from a fairy tale story, you know, and the, the... 
the score is like fairy tale esque and kind of whimsical and almost like cute, you know, and like it makes it so much scarier. Yeah, uh, like I can think about it and hear it. I love the end of that episode too because like Buffy and Riley, like their conflict at the beginning is that they they start stumbling over their words and they just need to communicate. They need to communicate, right? They they yeah. can't stop themselves from talking. Is the is the thing that they talk mm-hmm. about. And then he re- finds out in this episode that she is the Slayer. And they sit in the dorm room, right? And he's like, so I guess we needed to talk. And she's like, I guess we do. And they don't know what to say. It's like <laughs> such a great full circle, you mm-hmm. know? It's so Whedon-y, yeah. if that's a word, to just be like, yeah, I guess we're getting to talk. Black screen. Like, of yeah. course. Because I didn't even remember how the episode ended. But, like, when they sat down, I was like, oh, the episode's about to end. Like, I know yeah. that the, he, they're not going to have this conversation on this episode. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's so good. And also, like, heavily regarded as one of the top, like, episodes loved by fans. So it's, like, it's so good. For a good reason, too. It makes sense. All right. So now it's uh, episode 422, right? That's what you said? Yes. Did not see this coming. Yeah, yeah. We all kind of picked like one of the best episodes of the series to talk about. So this one's not like one of my favorite episodes. I just think it's like a really interesting episode. Okay, so the first episode that I've chosen to talk about is Restless. It's season four, episode 22. It is the final episode of the season. It's written by Joss Whedon. Um, And the episode kind of serves as a coda for the fourth season instead of the climax we didn't wanted to do something kind of different for a season finale. We have the killing of Adam, the big bad of the season in the episode prior. And it doesn't like really wrap up like everything totally. It kind of ends. So we have this kind of like coda episode, which is a big episode of foreshadowing upcoming events. Most notably, the appearance of Buffy's sister Dawn in the next yes. season. The whole next season. This episode comments on each of the four main characters and what they've like all just been through in the penultimate episode primeval and it's kind of like a character study of like all each character's insecurities and things that they're dealing with and maybe like in the future what they're going to have to come to a head with this episode is highly regarded for its cinematographic techniques like tracking shots because all of the characters I guess I should run down it's kind of a weird episode because they've just killed the big bad Adam of the series and they're all just kind of hanging out and they all take a nap and each character kind of has this really foreboding dream and it it doesn't really have like a beginning middle and end like all the other episodes do it's just kind of a meditation really all these like dreams the camera techniques use are to make it look really dreamlike. You're using tracking shots with a steady cam, um, a phraser lens to provide a large depth to feel, a 17 millimeter lens to give a sense of motion as the camera passes like through walls, and unusual framing for shots, overexposure, use of black and white shots. Like it's all over the place. So we have Willow's Dream. It's about her lack of self-confidence and sense of belonging. And we see her like in her season one clothes and stuff. And this is a character trait that's going to plague Willow through like all of the series for the entire rest of the series and has been in the seasons prior. Then we have the main theme of Xander's dream 
is his sense of failure and of being left behind by his friends while they move ahead in life. And and I wanted to point that out for you, Jordan, too, because it's like, he he is always thinking about like, oh, he's not the college boy. He's like, and this is like meditated on in his, in his dream that he's not like up to snuff with the rest of the Scoobies. Then we have Jayo's dream, which is my favorite dream. <laughs> he is presented with a choice Either he's going to remain like this father figure to Buffy as the watcher to Buffy, or he's going to begin his new life because Buffy might not need him anymore. And it's like, when I just watched it, I, I my most recent rewatch, um, aside from, you know, what I just watched in preparation for this episode was in 2020, 2020 going into 2021 when I was living at home during COVID. And I just cried because... Giles imagines Buffy as like a little girl and they're at a carnival or whatever. And it's just like, oh, he's such a good father figure to Buffy. And you see him wrestling with like, is this, when do I leave her? When does she become a a woman? When does she not need me anymore? Does she even need me anymore at this point? It's just like so well thought out in this fucking episode. Okay, and then we have the major theme of Buffy's dream is her fear of the personal cost of her life as a slayer, the isolation and loneliness that she's going to have to deal with. And by the end of like her encounter with the very first slayer, Buffy actually realizes that she doesn't have to be alone. And that, like I we said a little bit earlier, um, I can't remember if it was this episode or last episode, but the reason why she perseveres is because she's different than all the other slayers and that she has her friends and family behind her back, you know? Uh, and then and then we have fucking Cheese Man in the <laughs> fucking episode. It's so weird that this guy shows up in everybody's dreams with like a plate of cheese. And he's just like, I wear the cheese. The cheese does not wear me. It's so random. I don't think that it means anything. except for that except for that sometimes a a couple times in the series we talk about characters having an affinity for cheese i think willow tells riley like oh you like you know talk to buffy you know tell her that you like her something that you can talk about is that she likes cheese you know (laughs) and he like awkwardly brings it up it's like so funny (laughs) also like having to do with foreshadowing this this episode which is in season four has references to past and future episodes. Like we have Faith from season three say, you know, Little Miss Muffet counting down from 730. And that's foreshadowing Don's arrival yeah. two years later in season five. Crazy. Ah. That came up in a lot of my research as well, that like these episodes really are like pinpointing yeah. past and future moments in the show, which is brilliant, honestly. How do they do that? It's crazy. How do they do that? It just means <laughs> so that crazy. to me, like... The, it, you know, I don't, I don't want to say like singular vision, but that there are people that are working on this show that were able to see their vision through, you know, it like, it yes. wasn't a show that was plagued by the constant switching up of the people in charge and that kind of thing. Yeah. It was played by other things for sure, but that was not one of them. It was able to, uh, you know, really kind of set up things and then watch them be paid off. Yes, so cool. But and then in this episode, Buffy encounters Tara 
And there's a number, you know, 730, 730 appears on clocks in Buffy's dream, right? And Buffy tells Tara that it's so late, and Tara says, oh, that clock's completely wrong. And a year has now passed and makes the previous number that Faith talked about, the day of the arrival, is incorrect. And when Buffy leaves the room, Tara tells her, be back before dawn. If you guys so could bad. see her now just beaming, it's just yeah. Oh man, best. my cheeks hurt so bad because I haven't stopped smiling. <laughs> oh my god. There's other things too that are like not as important, but Tara says, you think you know what's to come, what you are, you haven't even begun, which are repeated by Dracula to Buffy in the following episode, the first episode of season five. Okay, uh, I just want to say, fucking love that episode too. I, that is also because <laughs> that's it's the a one, funny episode. Yeah. He's like a legend, and like we like know Dracula, you know what I mean? For her to actually meet Dracula, like that's such a big deal, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, oh, she's the vampire slayer, of course, she needs to meet Dracula. I know, right? That's the one, like, five season five, episode one is when we first meet Dawn, right? Is that the oh my gosh, no, wait, yeah, yes, yes, she we meet her at the very end of the episode, yeah, yeah, okay. I remember like being just completely floored. Like what? What? Me too. Like, yeah. Are you kidding me? Okay. Sorry. Keep going. No, that's basically it. Uh, They have some other references to things that are going to happen in the future. Like there's a part in Xander's dream when Giles and Spike are swinging together on the swing set and Spike is wearing this tweed jacket and he says, and Giles says, Spike is like a son to me. And that literally happens in season six in Tabula Rasa when they think that when Spike thinks that Giles is his dad and he's wearing a tweed jacket. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's pretty much all I had to say about this episode. Um, Apparently, it is also regarded as, like, one of the best episodes of Buffy because of, like, all this usage. Um, It's not my favorite episode. I just think there's a lot behind it that's really interesting. I like it when this show does things that are different. And it makes sense because I think we all do because so many of our episodes are the ones that are, like, not the normal one, like are are not normal episodes, right? Like there's something off about every single one of the episodes that we chose. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because like these kinds of episodes, these kinds of uh, TV shows can get pretty formulaic, right? Exactly. And it's just so exciting to know that the people involved with making this were always thinking about experimenting, you know? Yeah. Very revolutionary. Yeah. I was going to say one of the first to do that too. And it's, it's mm -hmm. really, yeah, it's great. There are a lot of firsts in this series. Another one I'm going to talk about later is is super important. All right, guys. This is going to be hard to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. We got you. This is um, my favorite episode of Buffy. It's a lot of people's favorite episode of Buffy. This is The Body from Season 5, Episode 16. I'm actually super stoked that, Jordan, that you're so recent to Buffy because I'd love to hear, like, your experience, like, watching this episode. So feel free to, like, you know, pop in whenever. Like, so this episode, man, this, in this episode, (laughs) (laughs) this um, episode has since been ranked by several critics as not only the best episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but one of the greatest te- television episodes ever broadcast. 100% agree. This episode actually begins with the ending of the previous episode. So in the previous episode, Buffy comes home 
and she recognizes a vase of flowers that are brought by her mother, the, the off-screen character that her mother is dating, Joyce. And um, she calls for her mom, and in the background, we see this fuzzy figure lying on the couch, and it's Joyce. It's Joyce, Buffy's mom's body. And throughout season five, Joyce, Buffy's mom, has been battling a brain tumor. And just a couple episodes prior, she survives her surgery, and she gets a clean bill of health, and she's cancer-free, right? And then we see her body lying on the couch. And, that's, and she says, Mom, Mommy, and it cuts to black. And that's the end of that episode. We start this new episode, episode 16, The Body, with that exact same scene. Then we get the Buffy the Vampire Slayer credits run. And then we're at a Thanksgiving scene. And Joyce is there. And it's like a really fucking happy scene. And they're like just talking about having Thanksgiving or whatever. And then it cuts back to, you know, the present. And the whole episode is just about Buffy finding her mom's body calling the ambulance, trying to revive her mom. Her mom is deceased. And uh, just her friends reeling from the aftermath of this beloved character and them having to go to the morgue and deal with, like, the aftermath of the death, right? You okay? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is really interesting because up until this point, any conflict or danger or evil that Buffy's ever faced has been supernatural and she could find a way to fight it. But the death of Joyce is completely natural and there's no explanation and no way to fight it and she's just dead. Uh, Joss Whedon wanted to capture the isolation and boredom involved in finding a loved one dead, right? He drew from his own experiences from his mother's death who also died from a brain aneurysm. He tried to achieve this like what is quoted as unlovely physicality in the body to portray this upsetting minutia involved in attempting to comprehend what is, you know, essentially incomprehensible. And you see that in a lot of like the choices in cinematography. Whedon shot the take where Buffy finds her mom as one long take. And um, when I looked it up in research, they did it like seven times. It's so horrible. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine like the emotional, t- like as an actress, like being Sarah Michelle Gellar, having to reenact that several yeah. times, that seems so like. And insane. according to what I read, they would go through the whole scene and then go rush back to the start and start again and do that Jeez. seven times. Uh, dang. My favorite parts of the episode are the opening of her just like finding it's so horrible. And what is so cool about this episode is that there is no music and everything is like just sounds and stuff. And I think about this all the time. Like there's this part where Buffy's waiting for the uh, coroner to show up or something and she throws up on the ground and then she goes outside and she, all she hears is like life happening still, you know, like, (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like there's kids playing and winds chiming and nothing is wrong for anybody else. And that's what happens, you know? And, um, I'm trying to like read my notes, but I'm like getting ahead of myself. Blah, blah, blah. I'm also like trying really hard to not cry. <laughs> you cry, it's okay. Yeah, it's totally fine. I also love the second act, which is Willow 
in her dorm room with Tara, and she's trying to deal with Joyce's death by changing her clothes, right? She can't find the right appropriate thing to wear. Ugh, Willow is so heart-wrenching in this part, so believable. She's just crying, and she's like, this isn't right or whatever. This is an important part of the episode <clears throat> that I wanted to talk about because Willow and Tara kiss in this episode. Um, and Whedon went out when he was creating all the episodes for Buffy that he never wanted to have a very special episode, quote, quote, which is like a format of like maybe an after school special or a teen drama where they have they deal with some like topic like AIDS or cancer or like school shooting or something like that. And. He didn't want to have any of that. And this is the first time that these characters kiss. And he didn't want there to be like an episode where in like this genre of television, like deals with female homosexuality, where they develop this, the lesbian kiss episode, right? Where they kiss and, and This character kisses another female, but no relationship is, like, further explored. And what he set out to do in this is acknowledge Willow and Tara's, like, affection for one another without making it the primary focus of the episode. And they just, like, need each other in that moment. And it's just, that was never really done. It's so cool. And then we have this part where Anya comes in right? And she's talking about, she's asking really inappropriate questions, right? She's like, are we going to see the body? Are we going to watch the body get cut open, right? And Willow cannot handle it. And Emma Caulfield has this like amazing speech where she just cannot comprehend mortality and death. And she talks about what I'm sure we all, you know, think about. And she says, I don't understand I knew her and she's gone and now there's just a body and I don't understand why she can't just get back in it. It's so stupid and mortal and Xander's crying and not talking and I was having fruit punch and I thought, well, Joyce will never have any more fruit punch or she'll never have eggs or yawn and brush her hair, not ever, and no one will explain to me why. And it's such a good... It's it is such so a good, good. part. And that is, yeah. that's one of the reasons why I loved Hell's Bells so much as well and that's why Anya is my favorite character is because she... Like, because of the circumstances of her character, she's able to explore these human moments in a way that we're able to relate to and really connect with. And much like the wedding where she's like, I just don't understand why this is happening. Like, her character, she's a demon. She doesn't understand, like, she didn't grow up human. She doesn't understand these things. But through the gang, she's able to have these experiences and really define why maybe these things are so difficult to mortals to begin with. And when she started breaking down, like that is another, like, it's so good. It's so, 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 so good. And thank you for bringing that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's so good. (laughs) There's like this like childlike aspect to Anya, even though the reason that she's a child, I guess, or whatever is because she was a demon but she's like newly mortal and there is a lot to learn that we take for granted for. And I really think that, you know, they could have just a lot, I guess a lot of times they do kind of play it for laughs, but I think there are also a lot of times where you're right. Like she can say a lot of really poignant things and make us feel like, wow, like that's actually like a, a really interesting way to sort of look at it because the things that she says in that episode, 
yeah, I've probably thought them, but like when I was younger, I think, I mean, like now I, I just don't look at things that way in particular, like at, at my core, maybe those are still problems that I have, but I, I don't think about like, oh, that person will never be able to drink this again, or, you know, they're just gone. I think I'm maybe, I don't know, like used to it. And whereas she's not, and you get the perspective of somebody who's just not used to these things. Yeah. She's brilliant in this. And Willow's reaction to her, they play off each other very well. Yeah, they do. Something also great about this scene is that Tara's character, her mom died when she was younger. And people forget about that, but it's like really emphasized in this episode because she's watching everybody deal with this bereavement in a way that she's already gone through. And the camera work is so brilliant because we see, it lets us rest on her taking everything in and like seeing that, oh, Xander's blaming everything. Maybe it's demons, maybe it's the doctors or something like that. And she's like, no, it's just death. You know, it just happens. Ugh. Okay, let me wrap this shit up. Oh my gosh, my computer is going to die. Hold on, let me, <laughs> let me get my fucking plug. Hold on. Okay, so I'm just going to like regurgitate a bunch of shit that I found on Wikipedia because it's so interesting. Okay, this episode is different from other episodes of Buffy because there are long pauses between dialogue and it creates gaps that turn really awkward and the characters are trying to think of something to say. And it's this is a show that's made notable by their quippy banter and stuff. Transitions between the Christmas dinner scene and the living room scene is abrupt and the sounds of like Buffy dropping the pie at the beginning is carried over for a split second into the silence of Joyce's like lifeless face. And that happens again when she imagines that the CPR works and that Joyce wakes up and she's like, Buffy, thank God you found me in time. And the doctors say she's good as new. And that sound carries over back to where we left her and she's still dead. So brilliant. That was so cruel. That was yeah. so cruel. And it, it, I loved how it was believable up to a certain point. And then you're start like, you have this like moment of yeah. relief and then the scene goes on and you're like, this seems off a little bit. And then it cuts <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, it was brilliant, but so cruel. So, so mean that he cruel. did that. Oh man. So like I was saying earlier, this episode doesn't have any like non-diegetic music and presenting the episode without any non-diegetic music was Whedon's way of denying the audience any comfort or forcing them to discern their own meanings from the character's actions and words like nothing is there to aid you in what you're supposed to be feeling it's blunt it's ugly it's tedious and boring at times and you just have to like sit with it and that makes it all the more real there's no catharsis and like at any point you know, whereas like a score would like allow us to have that, but we didn't thought that it might trivialize the loss. I didn't write any of this shit down, but there's this part where the doctor comes and tells Buffy that Joyce didn't feel any pain. And then it goes back to the doctor's face and she's like, are you sure? And what comes out of his mouth is disjointed, kind of like a, a bad voiceover. And he says, I'm lying to you to make you feel better. And I didn't notice it like for a long time until like I was older and stuff. And it's just like, this episode is so good. Who doesn't like have those thoughts or something like that, or imagine that everything is going to be fine. Like during those pivotal moments, you know, this episode did not win Emmys, which is just so absurd. 
<laughs> there are a couple of these that like come on. Yeah. Ugh. And ugh, the the part where ugh, I don't know. You guys talk. How do you feel, Jordan? Did you see this coming? What was this like for you? Did not see it coming. Um, I do have. I did write down a few notes here. Um, Hell the yeah. first is uh, so when you're doing CPR, it's really it should be thirty compressions to two breaths. And I just I really think <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm totally. <laughs> I think you. about that. <laughs> you know, um, and does Buffy know actually how to do CPR correctly? And she just because she also regresses to childlike tendencies in this um yeah no did not see it coming very shocking and there were so many moments where i was like is this a dream like like i I wanted so badly for that to happen and of course it didn't and um i do i appreciate this kind of episode again another break in form i say this all the time in this podcast that like music is so important and i picked up immediately that there was not a single note of music in the whole thing and, uh, you know, it's just as important to know when to use music as it is to keep it quiet. And I think it was a brilliant choice. I did want to bring up the scene in the dorm room. I mentioned, I don't know what episode this is going in, but I mentioned the friendship between Willow and Xander and how pure and incredible that is. And their moment where Xander just can't seem to express his anger to the situation. Willow's right there and she's like, put him up. Let's do this. Let's like, let's make you feel let's, he ends up punching a wall, but, uh, she, she's always there for him. And Mm -hmm. I just, it was such a great example of sort of all of my favorite characters and how they so seamlessly relate and react to each other. And it's just heartbreaking episode, but brilliantly done. Yeah. I have a story to tell you guys. My sister and I were watching this episode. It was during the day. I know that for sure. We had gotten out of class, and uh, my dad works nights, so he was home during the day. And it had just happened, and we were just like, my sister knew about it, but I'm like just stunned, and I just can't believe it. And uh, we were in our our den. My dad comes in there, and he starts talking to us, and I like rush to pause it, and I don't even know what he said, but I like with just this like broken, like half crying, very frustrated voice, turn around and say, dad, Buffy's mom just died. She's going through a lot right now. and We don't have time to talk to you. My dad has no fucking clue who Buffy is or anything. Like he has no idea what the hell we're talking about. And uh, I'm just screaming at him because this was like a fucking gut punch. I mean, it's heavy. Yeah. Heavy shit. I mean, uh, I just you just don't expect it. Like what Kimmy said, it's always been a supernatural thing, and the conflict is all internal here, and it's all reality based. And Hush is my favorite episode, but this is the best episode of the show. It's so good. There's like shit that I didn't say. I didn't even scratch the surface with some of the stuff that they have in here, like like Buffy going to fix her mom's skirt to like preserve her modesty when the ambulance comes in and stuff like that, or. Uh, like I just watched this episode, like people wrote into the show and claimed that watching this episode helped them come to terms with deaths in their own family. I just think that's like the power of storytelling is so vast, you know, it's so good. It's so good. Oh, and when she says like, man, I fucking cry every time when Giles comes in and he's like, what's going on? Is it glory? And he finds like Joyce's body and he's like trying to move in. She says, we're not supposed to disturb the body. 
and it's not Joyce anymore. It's just a body. (laughs) Doesn't she also have a moment where she, I think she's talking to the 911 operator and the operator refers to it as the body or refers to her as the body. Yeah. And Buffy's Buffy's like, no, is it cold? She says, yeah, she says she's cold. And the 911 operator says the body. And she says, no, my mom. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, my <laughs> oh my god it's so horrible and then do, it goes full circle at the end when they're in the morgue and they're seeing the body and she says she's not in there anymore she's gone and she says where did she go and that's the last line of the episode <laughs> this is so incredible man i fucking love this episode <laughs> i do before we wrap up this episode i do want to mention that like i mentioned my two least favorite characters but they my two favorite moments from these characters are in this episode it's when Mm. tara is on the couch with buffy kind of being able to relate to her and it's when buffy goes to the school and breaks the news to dawn that actually made me tear up like when you can't hear their conversation and you just see dawn slowly break down and they're both on the floor and it is just (laughs) gut-wrenching i know (laughs) it made me tear up and i'm like god that was a brilliant performance um yeah yeah i i didn't want to end that discussion without bringing up dawn's uh, or yeah. michelle trachtenberg i guess her performance yeah. in that was top notch apparently they shot that scene up close and like it wasn't working and they decided to like go inside the classroom and have it be something that you can't hear you know i just think that's the negative space yeah, yeah. Oh, man oh man <laughs> <laughs> okay so if we're done with that episode, yes, that means we're done with this episode and we're going to come back and do another one of these things because <laughs> we still have so many episodes left to talk about. <laughs> so this is not a two-parter. This is a three-parter. Surprise. <laughs> oh, my God.